How's everybody doing? Doing good? It's under 100 degrees. Huh? Oh my goodness, like for somebody that didn't grow up where it's hot, I don't know how y'all grew up here. This is like crazy. Well, it's good to have uh, everybody here. I know there's a, some new faces in here. My name's Todd, I'm the lead pastor here at Cornerstone and we're really glad that you're here and you're glad that you're gonna be a part of just hanging out with us as a spiritual family. Let me just say this, we as a spiritual family at the forefront of everything is Jesus Christ. And so we hope today that when you encounter us, you don't just encounter us, you encounter King Jesus and that he transforms your life if you don't already know him. And if you do not have a Bible, we would love to be able to give you one. There'll be some people walking down the aisles. If you would like a Bible, just raise your hand. They'd be happy to, to give it to you. We're going to be uh, looking in the book of Matthew, which is the very first book of what's called the New Testament, if you don't know a lot about the Bible. And by the way, if you don't, all of us at some point didn't know a whole lot about the Bible. Uh, when I first came to know Jesus, I didn't have, know a whole lot about the Bible, so I had to learn all those things. So if you need to even just touch, touch somebody on the you know, other side of you and say, hey, you look like you've done this a while. Can you help me find this little Matthew thing that's going on here? Because I need a little help, but uh, we'd love to be able to, to get you God's word in your hand. We believe that God's word is what it really is, the word of God. And it transforms our life. We, we, we believe it's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts to the very core of who we are. And so we'd love to be able to get you a Bible. Now, what we've been doing is we've been uh, starting off, and last week we started off a series called Apprenticing with Jesus, and it's all about the Gospel of Matthew. Now, I love that word apprenticing. We're not going to kind of get into it to really explain it well until we get to Matthew 4, but... The reason that I like it is it explains in a lot of ways, in a, and I would even say in a better way, what it means to be, I almost fell there. <laughs> I didn't drink last night, I promise. Uh, but it tells, I think, in a really, in a much better way, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I think in some ways the word Christian or even follower of Jesus, it, we kind of don't know what to do with those terms. And this word apprentice, we'll, we'll get into it a little bit, I think explains in a, in a pretty cool way what it means to be a disciple. It means to do discipleship from our, from our context. But like I said, we won't be doing that for, for a few weeks. But what we did last week is we, uh, we, did, we, we started off and we, we kind of used this, this illustration, which was a backpack. And I don't know if you remember, I used this when we were going through the Great Commission. Uh, this backpack is the, my favorite backpack. It's been to the top of a lot of peaks with me. But one of the things that we learned was is that what Jesus was doing for all those guys is he was taking, and the whole book of Matthew, he's loading things into a backpack to get them ready to send them. And if you remember right, we talked about the difference between a few, a few weeks ago, the difference between a dresser drawer, something that's permanent, and a backpack, something that is meant to, to leave, to go, to travel. And that's what we are as followers of Jesus. We're to take and travel. And Jesus was putting things in their bag. Well, last week, some of the things that Jesus put in our bag, or Jesus, man, Christian, I've, you're not Jesus. Christian, holy cow, I'm having a hard time. Lord, help me today. Um, but Christian began to talk about some of the things that got loaded into our bag last week. One is, is that we need to learn to see Jesus in light of the Old Testament. And so that's one of the things that you're going to see throughout the book of Matthew that, that gets loaded into our backpack is the capacity and the ability to see Jesus in light of the Old Testament. But we're going to look at this today, and I think this is equally, if not more important, 
We need to learn to see the Old Testament in light of the pinnacle. Nothing else in the Old Testament makes sense apart from Jesus Christ. And so he's loading our bag. And the other aspect of it is every week we're going to have this idea of, well, then how do we respond? Well, this week what we're going to talk about is some other skills, and we're going to have some other things that he's going to pull out. And one of the things that he loads the backpack with is this idea of what we learn about Jesus. So we'll kind of let this represent Jesus. I'm struggling around idolatry all the time. But this represents who Jesus is or who, who the Gospel of Matthew says Jesus is. Now here's what we're going to learn today is that Jesus Christ is the credible king. All right, so you're going to say it back to me. You ready? Jesus Christ is the Great job. That's one of the things we're going to learn today. The other thing we're going to learn is this idea, and we'll let this bag represent the next one, is we're going to learn about people. Christian kind of promised you that. In some ways, we're going to, we're going to be learning about people. And what we're going to learn today is, is that God can and does use anyone. All right, so repeat back to me. God can. Okay, not bad. It's okay. So that's what we're going to look at, and then we're going to try to figure out what do we do or how do we respond. Now, the way that we're going to do it, so I need everybody to buckle in. This is going to be exciting today. We're going to look at a genealogy. Come on. Come on over there. We are going to look at a genealogy. Now, if you're honest with each other, could I have uh, the security guys on this side, please? Uh, if, if we're honest with each other, Whenever we see genealogies in the Bible, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'll just confess for you. There are so many times where I'm like, I just kind of go through and I'm like, okay, there was a genealogy. Now, there are some people that are like meticulous with the genealogies and they read everything. But in most times, we just kind of glance over them. And I would even say probably some of you, when we started to talk about Matthew, you're like, oh, I can't wait to read it. And then it starts off with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And you're like, oh, seriously? Oh, the birth of Jesus, right? That's generally what we do. But inside these genealogies, and this is what I want you to see, it is loaded with information. There are these stories in there. Each of those people represent a different story in a pretty cool and compelling way. And what they're going to do is, is they're going to actually all fit together in such a way that they tell a story. Now that's important because generally when we talk about genealogies, we're precise and we look at them and we put them together. But in this particular context, when we look at Matthew, he's got something else in mind. And one aspect, one story that we're going to be told today is that Jesus Christ is credibly not just the king, but the king. All right, that's one of the first things that we're going to learn from that is Jesus Christ is credibly the king. And he starts off in 1-1. Christian looked at the idea of Abraham and David, but I want to take you back to this idea of it being called the book of the genealogy of Jesus. Now, one of the hard things for us, for those of us that like aren't Jewish people, we didn't grow up Jewish, or even I would even say most Jewish people don't even know their heritage anymore. It's like their, their context of going all the way back just because of what's happened over a lot of years. 
That word genealogy, though, to people at the time would have been huge. It's this Greek word, and I don't normally say this, but it's just, it's, it's genesis. It's, it's the same word we get Genesis from. And in Matthew, or excuse me, in Genesis like 5 and Genesis 11, when we see these little things like a genealogy, it means, and this is the way Jewish people would have seen it, God is about ready to do something here. Pay attention. And Matthew, when we're talking about Jesus as the credible king, he wants everybody to know, this is why he throws it out there at the front, like in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, God is about ready to do something here. Pay attention. This genealogy is like a a sign that reminds us God's about ready to do something. Not only that, but when you look down at it, you can look in there and you can look in like specifically in the very front end of it, verses two through six, the beginning of six, uh, the end of six through 11. And then even as you go down, when you look at 12 through 16, you see this idea, especially by verse 17, that he's gonna emphasize this idea of 14. So not only now is he saying at the front end, there's this genealogy, But by saying 14, 14, 14, he was showing us that it's it's the season, it's the time. There's this one, it's 14, 14, 14, something must be happening. And the big thing he's going to argue is that the Christ is coming. The Messiah is here. It would have been just in this first verse, just blazing out in front of everybody. Now what he's going to do, what Matthew's going to do that's different than Luke, is he's going to give us a descending geology, all right? Now some of you are like already beginning to check out. Don't check out. This is where it gets exciting. (laughs) A descending genealogy, meaning he's going to go from Abraham all the way down to Jesus. In Luke, he starts with Jesus and goes all the way to Adam. And we'll talk kind of why that's the case here in just a little bit. But in this descending genealogy, what he's trying to eventually get to in verse 16 is to show us that Jacob's the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and here's the the key to whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. That thing I was telling you about, that genesis, that 14, 14, 14, the Messiah is here. Now, again, for us, kind of in our context of the United States, whenever we see something like a genealogy, in many ways, it kind of gets boring. But in verse 1, he's already talked about this, Christ is coming, but so what's the big deal about it? Well, when I throw this up there, there's, there's my genealogy. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> there's Todd. Before him was Galen, son of Harold, son of Harvey. Son of James, son of Asa, son of Reason, son of Solomon, son of Colonel John, <sighs> Colonel in the Virginia of the uh, Revolutionary War. So just so you know, I could be a uh, son of the Revolution. Uh-huh. That's why you need to listen to me today. I am a son of the Revolution, just so you know. And then there's Christian. There's actually what it was in Germany. Nushvanga. Not only that, you follow it back a little further, and I'm von Nushvanga. <laughs> oh, I love that. What's your name? I'm Todd von Nushvanga of the clan von Nushvanga. Right? I mean, there's this, you look at that and we laugh because in the United States, we don't care. 
It's like, so what, dude? So your name still sounds funny like it did back then. <laughs> but in this particular context, though, genealogies meant a lot. Because if Jesus' genealogy did not come from Abraham, if his genealogy did not come from David, then Jesus was a liar and you shouldn't believe anything that he says. But if this Jesus truly, credibly is the king, let me just say this, especially if you don't know Jesus. If Jesus truly, credibly is the king, oh, we got a whole different ball game here. This genealogy is telling us something. It's, it's reminding us of something. But it's also, I think, in some ways telling us that this is a little different than they expected. See, on one level, they did expect a long-awaited, powerful king that was going to come into it. But look what he talks about here. It's Jacob, the father of Joseph. Now, what's missing there? Just real quickly, and I'll just throw this out to you. What, what do you expect it to say right after it says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the What? Father of Jesus. But it doesn't say father of Jesus. What does it say? The husband of Mary. Now again, a Jewish person at the time would have been like, whoa, 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 time out. Time out here. Except they would have gone, whoa, time out here. Time out. Hey, hey. Slow down. Right? Stop. Whoa. Something's not making sense here. See, anytime you would relate through this idea, especially within a genealogy of especially kings, it always came through the, the, the father's line. But suddenly in going through the father line, we throw in this idea of the mother of Mary, but he's never called the father in this context of Jesus. Why? Well, you're gonna have to come back next week, but I'll give you a clue. <laughs> it's this whole reality of what we celebrate at Christmas, the virgin birth his father is the father he is the king but he is also the son of the father and we'll talk about the significance of that but in this context the jewish people would have never expected a man in some ways born of a virgin now there was these glimpses of it that we see like in isaiah and we'll, again we'll talk about that next week but in there, this person would have been going, okay, what in the world is going on? Now, in many ways, when we look at this also, this particular context in which this falls, is that while one end of it, Joseph was not his biological father, we learned, though, later that he's kind of, he is his adoptive father. Now, at that particular time, to be adopted by a particular person meant that you got all rights to his, his, his inheritance, all rights to his lineage, all rights to everything, meaning to be adopted by this one was to be fully his. But what we're going to learn next week is Jesus wasn't just a fully man. He was also, he is fully God. And again, the people at the time, the Jewish people, they would have never expected that. They were expecting a human king, but along comes something within this genealogy that, again, we'll look at next week, but there is something different about this person, Jesus. There's something that's going on here. But don't mistake this. He was Joseph's son. One of my favorite aspects of Luke is that when it talks about Jesus beginning his ministry, and this is part of the, the genealogy that's in Luke 3, 
It talks about him being the son, and look at that word, as was supposed of Joseph. Everybody thought that Jesus was Joseph's son. But Luke even clarifies, as was supposed. He's not the biological son of Jesus. But even when Jesus kind of starts off, you know, the, the parents come to, to Jerusalem, uh, they start to take off. Jesus isn't chilling with them. You know, he's staying there. They come back. They're like, Jesus, what are you doing here? You know, and he says, hey, you know, where'd you expect to find me? I'm going to be in my father's house. But the one thing that stuck out to anybody that's around Jesus, though, is they were blown away by his teaching. That's one aspect of it. They were marveling at it. But then they said, is not this Joseph's son? So in other words, the way people perceived it, he was really the son of Joseph. He was the adopted son of Joseph. Now, some people in John 8 later on, and you'll, you'll see this, right? Jesus is sitting there, and he, he's kind of arguing back and forth with the religious leaders of the time, you know, and he's kind of telling them that you're of your father, basically Satan, which is not a great way to have a conversation. And, and they say, yeah, but well, your father, and I love this, you were not, you were not, were you not born of sexual immorality? In other words, aren't you a bastard child? Again, great combo, wasn't it? But in the back of their mind, there was a wrestling through, who is this Jesus? Who is this one that doesn't have a human father, but instead he has the father who the Bible talks about. We'll look at this next week. The Holy Spirit came upon her. She conceived a child as a virgin. This was a completely unexpected reality. And this is what Matthew is trying to tell them. He's saying this genealogy is screaming. This one who has come, this one that you've awaited is nothing like you've expected. Everything's about to change. Now, one of the things that's really cool within here, though, is that if you compare the two, the two genealogies, and just stick with me a little bit longer. I know it's like we're nerding out right now, but isn't it fun to nerd out every once in a while? When you compare these two genealogies, there's these little differences, but I want to show you one of the differences that highlights the fact that actually it, it, it amplifies this idea of Jesus truly being unique and different and something that they didn't expect. Now in Matthew 1.6, if you've got your Bibles, you can look down in there. It talks about this idea of Jesse being the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, we all know who that is, and we're going to save that for a little bit later. Now, what's different, though, is by the time we get to Luke 3, is that it is not a descending genealogy. It's an ascending genealogy. You're leaving with all kinds of cool words today, aren't you? This is awesome. You'll be able to talk about, I'm sorry, is that an ascending or descending genealogy? I'm just curious. But in this ascending genealogy, it talks about the son of Malaya, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. Why the distinction? Why is it that in one of them it talks about Solomon, and one of them in Luke it talks about Nathan? Does this mean that the Bible has contradictions and therefore it's not true? Well, the answer is no. But why? Well, one of the things that they have to deal with, if you go down to verse 11, is this person that's Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of deportation to Babylon. Well, why does Jeconiah matter at all? 
Well, when you follow the book of Jeremiah through, we come to this guy that in that case, it's called Kaniah. It's the same exact person. In Matthew, it's Jeconiah. But it says, thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Now, what that means is, is that Jesus, if he was only of the line of David and Solomon, he would never be able to rightfully sit on the throne. But in Luke, we find out also that in some way, and we'll talk about why, he is also, though, of the line of Nathan, who has never shown that he wouldn't be a ruler upon the throne. So what happened there? Well, there's two solutions to it, and both of them are good solutions, but let me throw them out to you. Here's the first one. The first one has Matthew, which shows the father's lineage. In other words, when you follow down all through Matthew 1, you kind of look at him, and it gets to Joseph. And by the time you get to Joseph, that is the father's lineage, and that would be what was called the kingly lineage. Now, in that kingly lineage and following it down, though, is Jeconiah. And so having that within it means, though, if he was of the son, if he was the son of Jeconiah all the way down through Joseph, Jesus was not going to be the one who would rightfully sit on the king or on the throne. But in Matthew, in that ascending genealogy, we have a different genealogy. It was the more the bloodline. And it's speaking, some people say, about the person of Mary. And when you follow that one up in a very, very cool way, is that Mary, she had the line of Nathan, meaning that the royal blood that he inherited, which would have been so important to the Jewish people, he was of this particular line of David. But in this case, he is able to sit on the throne because he is of the line of Nathan, not of the line of Solomon. Meaning, no matter which way you go on this thing, Jesus is the rightful king of Israel. Okay, that's one way to look at it, which is super cool, by the way, if you're a nerd out person like me. The second way to look at it is just on this, this one side where we look at this idea of all these heroes of the faith is that in some ways then we're lining up all these incredible heroes and that by the time you get to Jesus, he is the ultimate hero. But when we follow this lineup, it is his bloodline. This is the rightful line of his, his blood right to the throne, meaning that in this particular case, one is telling the story of heroes and one's telling the actual story of bloodline. But when you put them together, no matter how you slice or dice it, Jesus is the rightful king. Meaning what? This whole thing that, that he has put together, that Matthew has put together, is to make sure that everyone out there that listens to it, that reads it, that comes upon it, knows Jesus is the king. And in fact, this particular reality was something that was never, ever refuted in the time of Jesus or even right after. Nobody ever refuted that. They could have, people could have before the destruction of the temple come along and said, well, no, we found actually paperwork that shows that Jesus in any of those lines is not the rightful king. But did you know there is zero record whatsoever of anybody ever coming and denying the rightful reign of Jesus, meaning Jesus is the legitimate king. Now, if you haven't caught my point yet, I will say it once more. 
Jesus is the legitimate king that Israel had been longing for. He is the one that had been prophesied for. He is the one that I will now say to you, you can listen to him through the rest of Matthew because he is worthy. That's who this Jesus is. I love that. That's one story that this genealogy tells. And so as you leave here today, if that's the only thing you hear me talk about, you can leave and you can look at people and go, you know what? I was sitting in church today. I was reading through the Bible. I was hearing about history. And here's what I learned. Jesus is the king. And as long as you know Jesus is the rightful king, you're in a way better place than a vast majority of people in this world. Jesus is king. Love that. Okay, this one's not going to be so nerding out, okay? So everybody's like, okay, get a drink of water. We're not going to nerd out as much. Now, there's another story that kind of goes through this, that when we talk about it, that in one way, we're looking at Jesus being the Christ. We kind of said it from this standpoint, that we're going to look at this way in which who's Jesus, and we learned that Jesus is the king, But the other thing that we're going to look at, if you remember right, is we're going to learn something about people. So on one side, he is credibly, oh, come on. On one side, he is credibly the king. But on the other side, we're going to learn that God can and does use anyone. Which, by the way, for all of us sitting here, praise God. Come on. I mean, let's get a little Pentecostal here for a second, man. All God's people said? Amen. Okay, good. Now, here's what I want you to see out of it. Here's the second story that we're going to learn. In this second story, Christian told us a lot about last week about David. He told us about Abraham, specifically the promises of God given to them. And those promises find their, their end in the person of Jesus. Christian did a great job of unpacking that last week. But one of the things that I want to show you about these particular dudes is if we're honest with ourselves, these two cats aren't exactly great examples of like what it means to be a hero. In fact, when you look at even that first one that we'll kind of talk about kind of in, in, in line, Abraham. Let me just throw out to you, what are some of the things that we know about Abraham? This is where I want some feedback from you. What do we know about Abraham. Had many sons, had Father Abraham. I'm one of them. Now that song's gonna be stuck in everybody's head. You will leave. What else do we know about Abraham? He what? Oh, he was a big liar. He didn't just lie. Oh, and just think about it. Can you imagine? He lied about his wife. Husbands, what happens? If you lie about your wife. You're in trouble. He takes his wife to two different places and says, hey, tell him you're my sister, not my wife. (laughs) I did that. My wife would have me sleeping on the couch for a year. He's a liar. What else do we know about him? What? He's what? He is a cheater. He is a cheater. What else? Okay, he was a friend of God. You went to the good qualities. We're saving those till the end. We're going to make fun of him first. I like to first kind of tear people down before I build them up, if you know what I mean. That's how I parent. What? He was a polytheist. That's right. He actually was an idolater at the very beginning of his life. In many ways, the place that he came from, he was a nobody. 
Now, in some ways, again, just put this in the back of your head. Matthew puts him in there. This one that is the epitome of what it means to be a Jew. Now, there's some great qualities, right? We know that he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was this one that when it came down to it, he was ready even to sacrifice his son as this act of faith. So let's not miss this. He had some good moments, but overall, this last time reading through the Old Testament, this guy does not have a great story. Now, what about David? Now, David, right, he has kind of a rough start, right? They show up, and they're going to anoint a new king, and he's got all his brothers, and they keep looking through various brothers and nobody's thinking that David should actually be the one that should be the next king because he's kind of small and ready. He's a guy that you don't expect to be that next one. But God says, the problem is we look at the outside, but not the what? The heart. David had a good start, didn't he? Oh my goodness, did he have a good start. Man, the whole time, right? I mean, people are cheering because it's like David, you know, killed his 10,000, Saul, his, you know, couple here and there. And it's just like David, 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 David's the man. But we know this because we come to this point within his life in which he should have gone off to war. He didn't go off to war. And in the midst of it, he was hanging out on top of the walls down where the ladies like to bathe. And he saw Bathsheba. And when he saw her, things did not go well from there. Not only did he have an inappropriate affair with her where he probably used her, his power as an authority to draw her in. In other words, he took advantage of her. But we know that from there, it was the beginning of the destruction of his kingdom in some ways. It took what was so good, this unity, to begin to destroy it. We also learned in a lot of ways, David was a bad dad. Let me just say this. As I read through David as a dad, I feel like I'm a stinking great dad. If you have like ever an emotion, those of you that are dads out there, where you're feeling like, oh, I'm kind of a bad dad, read the life of David and you're like, dang, I'm good. <laughs> but he was a mess. Now, you might be thinking, okay, well, what about their kids? Well, Isaac, he was a liar too. He did almost the same exact thing as his pops. He had a lot of other issues too. What about Solomon? Solomon liked women more than David. He loved to set up alliances. He didn't trust God. This guy that was supposed to be so wise became a fool. And he was the king that eventually destroyed the unity of the kingdom. They were a mess. But here's what I want you to get from this. Humans are a mess, but God is faithful. We tend to screw things up. If you feel like you're a screw up, welcome to the club. It's why we need Jesus for not only his forgiving, redemptive work within us so that we might be made different to be able to be the people that God intends us to be. But humanity is messed up. But in spite of being messed up, this is what I love about it, is that our God is faithful. So whether I'm talking Abraham, whether I'm talking Isaac, whether I'm talking David, whether I'm talking Solomon, God will always be faithful to his promises. But not only do you see that, I would love you to look down into, here's kind of the next thing I want you to see. Look down into verse three. Let me, let me show you about a few women through this because it wasn't just men that were messed up. And I know the women are like, oh, you better be careful. <laughs> but the women were pretty messed up too. We come to this first one, Tamar. 
Now, on one level, it's like, you know, today or tomorrow, but, you know, it's just like you're not sure what to do with this one, but we come to tomorrow. Now, on one level, you're like, oh, who's this Tamar lady that was fathered a child from Judah, and there was Perez and Zerah? Well, just so you know, Judah was her father-in-law. Uh-oh. See, he had a son, Judah. His name was Ur. Don't name your son that, right? What's your name, Ur? <laughs> but his name was Ur, and he died without having an heir. So Judah comes to all of his sons, and he's like, hey, you need to give your brother an heir. That's, that was the thing to do at that time. Like, you didn't want to stop the family name. And each of the brothers are like, uh-uh, not me. So Tamar decides, I got an idea. So she dresses up as a lady of the night, and she goes and seduces Judah. And Judah does what he shouldn't with her, and she gets pregnant with these two people in here messed up. What about Rahab? Well, when I say the term Rahab, what two words go with Rahab? Rahab, the harlot. How would you like to go down for all of history? Todd, the big loser, you know? <laughs> Rahab, the prostitute. Now, everything turned out great on it, but just think about it. A prostitute. So we have a lady that corrals her father-in-law, who the two children come from him. We have a prostitute. Does it get any better? Oh, good, it's Ruth. Whew. Ruth is good. But does anybody know what country Ruth is from? She's a Moabite. How did the Moabites get started? They're the offspring of Lot after he should, did what he shouldn't have with his two daughters, meaning she's the offspring of incest. Hmm. The wife of Uriah, we know how that one goes. Now again, what's the deal here? Like God was faithful with Abraham and God was faithful with Isaac and God was faithful with David and God was faithful with Solomon and God in this particular context was faithful with Tamar and God was faithful with Rahab and God was faithful with Ruth and God was faithful with the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. Let me just say this. This genealogy shows that in spite of us, not because of us, this plan will move on because our God is absolutely unstoppable. I love that because I know I am just as messed up as these people. Maybe I don't have that. Okay, I haven't done some of these things, but like just people are like, oh my gosh, we better go. Time to leave corners. <laughs> No, not that. I just mean it, right? If we're all on it, I would even say this. If you don't think you're messed up, you are just like the Pharisees that, people is, that Jesus is going to talk to here in just a little bit. In the same way that this ragtag group of people became this long line of what became eventually the great King Jesus, is that we find out from Matthew the people that follow Jesus are very ragtag too. Matthew 4, we learn about a group of fishermen that follow Jesus. But one of my favorites is in Matthew 9. Matthew, if that's who wrote this, encounters King Jesus. 
Now, Matthew, if you don't know who he is, he's a tax collector. Now, anytime you read the word tax collector within the book of Matthew, it's always going to be attached to drunks and prostitutes and sinners, meaning he's not exactly at the high end of the totem pole. We'll talk more about who he is when we get to him, of what it means to be this great person. And I think as Matthew was writing this out, he was saying to himself, look, God can and does use Abraham. God can and does use Isaac. God can and does use David. God can and does use Solomon. God can and does use Tamar. God can and does use Rahab. God can and does use Ruth. God can and does use Bathsheba. And I even think now part of the going through this and rehearsing it is God can and does use a tax collector named Matthew. See, after Jesus encounters Matthew, we'll see this later, Matthew throws a party. He's like, no way, I've run into the king. The king has asked me, the tax collector, to follow him. He throws this huge party. He invites all the prostitutes, all the tax collectors, all the drunks, and they come and they encounter the king. What does that mean? God's grace can get to anyone. I don't care who you are or what your background is, God's grace is bigger. I don't care if you think within your mind you've done something so inescapable and it's it's just dastardliness, and that's the only word I could think of right now. But in that way that you are beyond the grace of God, but our God is powerful. Not only is Jesus the credible king, but God can and does use anyone. For us as Christians in this room, we need to see ourselves in that way. We know full well that apart from him, he's going to say in John 15, we can do nothing. But all of these people that ran into Jesus, think about it. When they encountered the king, the rightful king, they became people that you would have never imagined. I mean, Peter, just take him in for an example. Peter, when he encountered Jesus, was a total knucklehead. I would have never started and said, hey, dude, you're going to be the leader amongst leaders. He was a knucklehead. But yet you put him around Jesus, and the dude was like, Jesus comes walking to him on water. Do you remember that? And he's like, hey, if you're truly Jesus, tell me to come walk to you. (laughs) Who says that? And Jesus is like, come on. Maybe not like that, but he goes and he gets out of the boat. He walks to Jesus. Why? Because when these people were around the rightful king, they were different. Jesus looks at him and says, who do people say that I am? And they're like, oh, you know, maybe John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. We don't know. Who do you say that I am? And Peter just steps forward. You are the son of the living God. You are the rightful king. You are the true one. That's who you are. Even at the very end, right, they're, they're chilling in the garden and they just got done praying and the praetorian guard comes out to Jesus and you're about ready to, to arrest him. And what does Peter do? He pulls out a switchblade. Ka-ching! To take on the praetorian guard, cuts off the dude's ear. You know, Jesus is like, oh, Peter, stop. Puts his ear back on. Put your knife away. Jesus, you're embarrassing me in front of this. You know, but... but there's just this side of it when they were around the king. Watch out. Why? Because God can and does use anyone. So if you ever feel like you can't be used by God, you don't know our king. 
Our king is powerful. But there's another side of it too that I think we as Christians really need to be careful of. I think it's not only how we see ourselves, but it's how we see others. I think we look out into our world and we, we kind of look away from these walls. We see people out there as the problem. We see them as the, the icky, the people that shouldn't encounter our king, the ones that are not like us. And by the way, what you're going to learn from a people standpoint, kind of when we hold up this one, there's other groups of people called the Pharisees, that there's this one story that hit me like a ton of bricks this last week. I don't have time to go into it. But this Pharisee comes in and sees this, this publican beating his breast and begging for the grace of God. And the Pharisee goes, oh, Lord, thank you for not making me like him. And sometimes I feel that's what Christians do, especially certain communities Maybe when we look at the, maybe the, the gay, lesbian community, the LGBTQ community, or we, or we look at like maybe a different community that's out there that maybe doesn't have, that has a stigma to it from our perspective. In the back of our mind, we think, well, God can obviously use, use me, but he can never use them. And let me just tell you that. What that is is a lie from the pit of hell because God can and does use anyone. Period. So what do we do with this? Here's the next thing. You're probably going, yeah, Todd, bring it to an end. <laughs> Here's the thing. What do we do? How do we respond? Here's the first thing. One of the biggest things that I hope we do is we start to learn what it means in every facet of our life to truly make Jesus the king. Right now in here, I'm looking around at a room, and the only reason I'm looking at you this way is because I know myself. There are areas of our life that we need the king to transform us. There's areas of our life we know that we need to be confronted. For some of you, you don't know Jesus, and this is why I'm telling you, and I hope that you hear me today. You're going to see through the book of Matthew that when we, we look at this particular king and who he is and what he's about, that he's not just anybody, and it's not just about a lineage. See, you're going to encounter this Jesus who was someone who preached and people were trying to figure out, oh, who is this one that says what he says? He was a healer. He rose people from the dead. He cast out demons. He had power over nature. Like we've already said, they walked on water. He calmed storms. And even we're going to get to the very end of it at the Matthew, we're going to learn he was raised from the dead, not just as anybody, but as the king of all kings. And I would say this, my hope is, is that before we're done with Matthew, and maybe even today, that if you don't know King Jesus, today you would bend that knee to the king. Because once you run into that king, what you're going to understand is that God can and does use. You got my point, good. That's the first thing. We need to encounter the king. But the second thing is, is we need to start looking at people like God does. Every person that we walk out and see, you need to understand this, regardless of who they are, how they dress, what they do, all of us need King Jesus to do a work in us. But all of us are created in the image of God, and therefore God can and will do things in their life. He can transform people. See, I think we need to re-grasp the good news of the gospel. 
The gospel states within it that King Jesus came, he died, he was buried, he rose again, but it is good news to the world. It's good news not only that we are made right with God, but it's this good news that sinners can be made different. We can be transformed. We can be made into the people that God intends us to be. When we encounter that king, we will never be the same. And if I really, really believe that, I will tell others about it no matter who they are. I will tell them about this good news of this great king. This good news of this great king that has come to truly make this man or this woman into the man or the woman that God intends them to be. We need to re-grasp that because King Jesus grasped that. That's why he called sinners and drunks. He called tax collectors and fishermen. He called Pharisees and the people that were sad, you see, and the Essenes. Jesus knew his message was good news for everyone. So as we're just here today, I know it's just a genealogy, but isn't it cool? So now the rest of the time, whenever you get to genealogy, read your genealogy. Because each of those genealogies tell a story. This one says that Jesus is the rightful king. And that God can and does change anyone. And all God's people said, Amen. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for everyone that's here. Thank you for leaving a genealogy that tells not just those two realities of the story, but Father, tells so many other stories that we didn't have time to go into. Would you do your work in our church, please, in your precious name? Amen.